0: welcome i am your host and this is the unanswered questions podcast Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavor to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now, on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Bravo 20 and the controversy surrounding it. So, Bravo 20 was the call sign of an eight man British Army Special Air Service SAS patrol deployed into Iraq during the first Gulf War in January of 1991. According to Chris Ryan's account, the patrol was given the task of gathering intelligence, finding a good lying-up position, LUP, setting up an observation post, OP, and monitoring enemy movements, especially Scud missile launches on the Iraqi main supply route, MSR, between Baghdad and northwestern Iraq. However, according to Andy McNabb's account, the task was to find and destroy Iraqi Scud missile launches along a 250-kilometer, 160-mile stretch of the MSR. The patrol has been the subject of several books, accounts in the first two books, one in 1993 by Patrol Commander Stephen Mitchell writing under the pseudonym Andy McNabb, Bravo 2-0, and the other in 1995 by Colin Armstrong writing under the pseudonym of Chris Ryan, the one that got away, do not always correspond with one another about the events. Both accounts also conflict with the SAS's Regimental Sergeant Major RSM at the time of the patrol, Peter Ratcliffe, in his 2000 memoir, Eye of the Storm. Another book by a member of the patrol Mike Coburn, titled Soldier 5, was published in 2004. Michael Asher, a former soldier with the SAS, went to Iraq and traced in person the route of the patrol and interviewed local Iraqi witnesses to its actions. Afterward, he alleged that much of Mitchell's Bravo 2 and Armstrong's The One That Got Away were fabrication. His findings were published in a British television documentary film by Channel 4 Television and in a 2002 book entitled The Real Bravo 2 both Armstrong and Mitchell reacted angrily to the documentary and Asher's conclusions. Mitchell was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal for his actions during the mission, whilst Armstrong and two other members, Stephen Lane and Robert Consiglio, were awarded the Military Medal. Now we're going to get into the patrol members who went on this very, very unfortunate mission. So first off, we have Sergeant Stephen Billy Mitchell, DCM-MM Patrol Commander. He was a former Royal Green Jacket, captured by the enemy, was later released, author of Bravo Two Zero, and referred to as Andy McNabb in the books. Then we have Sergeant Vincent David Phillips, Patrol 2IC, which meant he was second in command. He was a former Royal Army Ordnance Corps, died of hypothermia during action on the 25th of January 1991. Then we have Corporal Colin Armstrong, MM, former 23R SAS, the only member of the patrol to escape capture, author of The One That Got Away, and better known under his pseudonym as Chris Ryan. Then we have Lance Corporal Ian Robert Dinger Pring, MBE VR, former Parachute Regiment, was captured by the enemy and later released. Then we have Trooper Robert Gasper Casiglio, M.M. Pomotheus, former Royal Marine, 42 CDORM, killed in action 27th of January 1991. Then we have Trooper Stephen John Legs Lane, M.M. Pomotheus, former Lance Corporal of 9th Parachute Squadron, Royal Engineers and former Parachute Regiment, died of hypothermia during action on the 27th of January 1991. Then we have Trooper Malcolm Graham McGowan, BDSC, former Australian First Commando Regiment, captured by the enemy, later released, referred to as Stan in the books. Then we come to the last trooper, which was Mike Kiwi Coburn, pseudonym, former New Zealand Special Air Service, captured by the enemy, later released, author of Soldier 5, referred to as Mark the Kiwi in the books. Now we come to the patrol and the background of the patrol. So in January of 1991, during the prelude to the coalition ground invasion of Iraq, B Squadron 22 SAS was stationed at a fort operating base in Saudi Arabia. The squadron provided a number of long-range, similarly tasked teams deep into Iraq, including three eight-man patrols: Bravo One Zero, Bravo Two Zero, and Bravo Three Zero. Asher lists one of the three patrols as Bravo One er though it's not clear whether this is one of the same three. Listed by Ryan. Peter Ratcliffe, who was RSM at the time in his book Eye of the Storm, also mentions the first patrol as Bravo 19 and the only patrol that used vehicles with Bravo 30 aborting their mission immediately on seeing the terrain they had to operate in. This is the exact opposite to what is mentioned in Des Powell's book Bravo 30, in which his patrol, Bravo 30, was the one with the vehicles and Bravo 10 the one that aborted. Now we get to the insertion of the teams. So, on the night of the 22nd slash 23rd of January, the patrol were transported into Iraqi airspace by an RA of Chinhook helicopter, along with Bravo 30 and their Land Rover 110 vehicles. Unlike Bravo 30, the patrol had decided not to take vehicles. According to McNabb's account, the patrol walked 20 kilometers or 12 miles during the first night to the proposed location of the observation post. However, both Ryan and Coburn's accounts put the distance at two kilometers, 1.2 miles. Eyewitness accounts of Bodium tribesmen and Asher's recreation support the Ryan Coburn estimate of two kilometres or 1.2 miles. Ryan states the patrol was intentionally dropped only two kilometres (1.2 miles) from the observation post because of heavy pack weights. Now according to both Ryan and McNabb, the weight of their equipment required the patrol to shuttle the equipment to the observation post. Four members would walk approximately 300 meters and drop their bergens and wait. The next four would move up and drop their bergens and the first four would return for the jerry cans of water and bring them back to the group, followed by the second four doing the same. In this manner, each member of the patrol covered three times the distance from the drop off to the observation post. Soon after the patrol landed on Iraqi soil, Lane discovered that they had communication problems and could not receive messages on the patrol's radio. McNabb later claimed that the patrol had been issued incorrect radio frequencies. However, a 2002 BBC report discovered there was no error with the frequencies because the patrol's transmissions had been noted in the SAS daily record log. Ratcliffe lays the blame for the faulty radios on McNab as the patrol commander. It was his job to make sure the patrol's equipment was working. Now we come to the compromise. So in late afternoon of the 24th of January, the patrol was discovered by a herd of sheep and a young shepherd. Believing themselves compromised, the patrol decided to withdraw, leaving behind excess equipment. As they were preparing to leave, they heard what they thought to be a tank approaching their position. The patrol took up a defensive positions, prepared their law rockets and waited for it to come into sight. However, the vehicle turned out to be a bulldozer which reversed rapidly after seeing the patrol. Realising that they had now definitely been compromised, the patrol withdrew from their position. Shortly afterwards, as they were exfiltrating, according to McNabb's account, a firefight with Iraqi armored personnel carriers and soldiers began. In 2001, Asher interviewed the Bodian family that discovered the patrol. The family stated the patrol had been spotted by the driver of the bulldozer, not the Young Shepherd. According to the family, they were not sure who the men were and followed them a short distance, eventually firing several warning shots whereupon the patrol returned fire and moved away. Asher's investigation into the events, the terrain, and position of the Iraqi army did not support McNabb's version of events and excludes an attack by Iraqi soldiers and armored personnel carriers. Coburn's version, Soldier 5, passed. Partially supports McNabb's version of events, specifically the presence of one armoured personnel carrier, and describes being fired upon by a 12.7mm DSHK heavy machine gun and numerous Iraqi soldiers. In Ryan's version, McGowan also saw an armoured car carrying a 50 caliber machine gun pull up. Somehow I never saw that. Ryan later estimated that he fired 70 rounds during the incident. Now we get into the emergency pickup. So British Standing Operating Procedure SOP states in the in case of an emergency or no radio contact, a patrol should return to the original infiltration point where a helicopter will land briefly every 24 hours. This plan was complicated by the incorrect location of the initial landing site. The patrol reached the designated emergency pickup point, but the helicopter never appeared. Ratcliffe later revealed that this was due to an illness suffered by the pilot while en route, necessitating his abandoning his mission on this occasion. Because of a malfunctioning emergency radio that allowed them only to send messages and not receive them, the patrol did not realise that while trying to reach overhead Allied jets, they had in fact been heard by a US jet pilot. The jet pilots were aware of the patrol's problems but were unable to raise them. Many sorties were flown to the team's last known location and their expected exfiltration route in an attempt to locate them and to hinder attempts by Iraqi troops trying to catch them. Now we get into the exfiltration route. So, standard operating procedure mandates that before an infiltration of any team behind enemy lines, an exfiltration route must be planned so that members of the patrol know where to go if they get separated or something goes wrong. The plans of the patrol indicated a southern exfiltration route towards Saudi Arabia. According to the SAS daily record log kept during that time, a TACB transmission from the patrol was received on the 24th of January. The log read, Bravo 20 made TACB contact again. It was was reasonable to assume that they were moving south, though in fact the patrol headed north-west towards the Syrian border. Coben's account suggests that during the planning phase of the mission, Syria had been agreed upon destination should an escape plan need to be implemented. He also suggests that this was on the advice of the officer commanding B Squadron at that time. According to Ratcliffe, the change in plan nullified all efforts over the following days by Allied forces to locate and rescue the team. McNabb has been criticised for refusing advice from superiors to include vehicles in the mission to be left at an emergency pick-up point, which would have facilitated an easier exfiltration. Another SAS team used Land Rovers in this role when they had to abandon a similar mission. However, it is also suggested that the patrol jointly agreed not to take vehicles because they felt that there were too few in number and the vehicles were too small. Only short wheelbase Land Rovers were available at that time to be of use and were ill-suited to a mission that was intended to be conducted from a fixed observation post. Now we get into the separation. So, during the night of the 24th to the 25th of January, while McNabb was trying to contact a passing coalition aircraft using a TACB communicator, the patrol inadvertently became separated into two groups. While the others waited for a response on the TACB, Phillips, Ryan and McGowan continued to move through the darkness. Neither of the two resultant groups followed the standard emergency rendezvous ERV procedure. They had been trained to follow and had followed the night before. Instead, both groups independently continued north towards the Syrian border. After the separation, Phillips, Ryan and McGowan had two M16 M203 assault rifles and a Browning high-power pistol among them, as well as at least one Tacbee and the night sight around Ryan's neck. McNabb, Pring, Lane, Consiglio and Coburn had their original weapons, which was three Mini-Mis and two M16 M203s among them, as well as McGowan's mini mini-me which McNab was carrying but soon discarded. The larger group carried at least one Tacbee and the McGowan GPS. According to Ryan, he was also carrying a 66mm Law rocket, which he had struggled to free from his Bergen during the initial contact. According to McNabb, however, the only item removed by Ryan from his Bergen was a silver hip flask, and it was McNabb who was the only one carrying a 66 after this contact. He stated he left the 66 in the Bergen and was the only one to do so. Despite conflicting accounts, it is possible that Ryan may have, in fact, eventually ended up with McNabb's Law rocket, an item that Ryan later claimed to have used against an Iraqi land. rover-type vehicle. This event is discounted by Ratcliffe, who states that at the regimental debrief, Ryan made no mention at all of encountering enemy troops on his trek. Now we come to the death of Phillips. So, on the evening of the 25th of January, Ryan McGowan and Phillips left the tank berm they had stayed in during the day and headed north. Phillips was already suffering from hypothermia and could no longer hold his M16 M203, which was handed to McGowan. As they continued, Phillips' condition worsened to the point where he mistook his black gloves for the color of his own hands and began yelling out loud. Eventually, Phillips lost contact with the other two somewhere around 20 hundred hours and died a short time later. According to Ryan and McGowan, they both searched for Phillips for about 20 minutes before deciding to continue without him, while according to General Sir Peter de la Bellery, only Ryan searched while McGowan waited ryan also indicated that he didn't know phillips was necessarily dead when he wrote and i quote i hope to the gods that phillips was doing the same then he would find his way down and later there was still five to account for end quote though mcgowan admitted he knew phillips was dead at the time according to the sas regimental role of honor it states that phillips died of exposure while evading capture in iraq on the 22nd of january 1991 at the age of 36. So, at around midday on the 26th of January, Ryan and McGowan were discovered by an old, according to McGowan, goat herder tending a flock of goats. After discussing possibly killing the man, McGowan decided to go with him to locate a vehicle, while Ryan decided it was not safe to do so, and remained where he was under the agreement that McGowan would return by 1830 hours. McGowan took with him Phillips M16 and M203, but left his belt kit in order to not cut such an aggressive figure. A mistake in the long run. McGowan walked with the goat herder for about four hours before encountering a group of men with a Toyota Land Cruiser vehicle. According to Ryan, McGowan shot and killed an unarmed Arab as he ran towards the vehicle followed by two more armed with AK-47s. Without his belt kit, he'd ran out of ammunition and was captured as he attempted to take the vehicle. As I said before, should not have left his ammunition and belt kit behind. According to McNabb's secondary account of these events, the old goat herder left McGowan with directions to a hut where he found two vehicles. After killing a uniformed Iraqi soldier attempting to reach one of the vehicles, six or seven more came from the hut, three of whom were killed before McGowan's M16 M203 gun jammed, and he was captured as he sat in one of the vehicles. According to an interview given by McGowan in 2002, he came across the first soldier near a vehicle, quote, I brought up my trump card which was Mahaba, and he said nothing, and I carried on talking and he made a dash for the vehicle. I shot him in the head, a single shot, end quote. As more soldiers came out of the hut, McGowan aimed his rifle and fired but heard a click, indicating he was out of ammunition. It was apparent that Phillips had never reloaded the weapon after the initial contact on the 24th of January. For reasons unknown to McGowan, the soldiers did not return fire, but instead took him captive. Now we come to the hijacking of a vehicle by McNabb's group. So, during the events of the 26th of January, McNabb's group of five stole a taxi at gunpoint by having Consiglio pretend to be wounded in McNab's arms while lying on the side of a road. When the car approached, Pring, Lane and Coburn came up from behind cover and surrounded the vehicle. According to McNabb's account, the group evicted all occupants from the taxi and drove until they reached a checkpoint where Lane shot and killed one soldier while the others in the group killed two more. According to Ryan's secondhand hand account, The group were driven to the checkpoint by one of the Iraqi occupants of the taxi. They exited the vehicle with plans to rendezvous on the other side of the checkpoint, but the driver alerted the police and the group were forced to continue on foot. Ash's investigation, based on evidence from the actual driver of the car, supported Brian's version of events, with no reported armed contact and no reported Iraqi casualties. Now we come to the capture of McNabb's group. So, on the morning of the 27th of January, McNabb's group of five came into contact with local civilians and police. Consiglio was shot and killed by armed civilians at approximately 0200 hours. Lane died of hypothermia later that same morning after swimming the Eurofats with Pring, who along with McNabb and Coburn, were subsequently captured. During an exchange of gunfire prior to capture, Coburn was shot in both the ankle and the arm. According to McNabb, the four capture patrol members, McNabb, Pring, McGowan, and the wounded Coburn, were moved numerous times, enduring torture and interrogation at each successive location. According to McGowan, however, incidents such as teeth extraction and burning with a heated spoon did not happen. It is inconceivable that any such incidents could have occurred without them being discussed or being physically obvious." At the time of the release, on the 5th of March of McGowan and Pring, they were described as in good shape by Red Cross representative. They were last held at Abu Ghraib Prison before their release. Please do forgive me if I get that name wrong. Now we come to Ryan's escape to Syria. Now, Ryan claimed to have made SAS history with the longest escape and evasion by an SES trooper or any other soldier to make it to Syria, covering some 180 miles, 290 kilometers on foot. Now we come to the equipment the patrol had. So, each member of the patrol wore a two-shade desert DPM uniform with a World War II-era sand-colored desert smock. While the other members had regular-issue army boots, Ryan, the only member to avoid eventual capture, wore a pair of 100-pound Brown Rachel Gore-Tex Lined Walking Boots Again, forgive me if I get that name wrong Each member carried a belt kit, Bergen rucksack, one sandbag of food, one sandbag containing two NBC suits, I'm not too sure what they are, extra ammunition bandoliers, and a five imperial gallon or 6.0 US gallon 23 litre jury can of water. The belt kit contained ammunition, water, food, and trauma cure equipment. The rucksack contained 25 kilograms or 55 pounds of sandbags and observation post equipment, seven days worth of rations, spare batteries for the radio, demolition, Equipment including PE four plastic explosive detonators in both Claymore and LC antipersonnel mines, and intravenous drips and fluid for emergencies. The patrol also had a PRC 319 HF Patrol radio carried by Lane, four TacB communication devices carried by Ryan, McNabb and two others to communicate with Allied aircraft, a Melligan GPS carried by Coburn, and a kite night sight carried by McGowan. The total weight of each member’s kit was estimated at 95 kilos or 209 pounds by McNab and 120 kilos 260 pounds by Ryan. McNabb, Phillips, Ryan, and Lane carried M16, M203 assault rifles, while Pring, Casiglio, McGowan, and Coburn carried FN Minimi light support machine guns. Each member carried a 66mm Law rocket on his back. Due to a missing shipment within the squadron, Phillips was the only member who carried a backup weapon, that being a Browning high power pistol. Now we're going to move away from this, and we are going to talk about two specific people in the controversy surrounding this whole thing, that being Chris Ryan and Andy McNabb. So first off, we're going to start with Andy McNabb. So Stephen Billy Mitchell, CBE DCMMM, born on the 28th of December 1959, usually known by the pseudonym and pen name of Andy McNabb, is a novelist and former British Army infantry officer. He came to public prominence in 1993 when he published a book entitled Bravo Two Zero, 0 containing an account of a military mission in which he had taken part with the Special Air Service SAS during the Gulf War for which he had been awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal. He had previously been awarded the Military Medal in 1979 for gallantry in action while serving with the Royal Green Jackets in Northern Ireland. He has published a number of other fiction novels and two autobiographies in addition to Bravo Two Zero. 0 He's also published a book on psycho- psychopathy entitled The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success, claiming that he exhibits many psychopathic traits. Now we'll get into his early life. McNabb was born on the 28th of December 1959, found abandoned on the steps of Guy's Hospital in South Warwick in a Harrods shopping bag. He was brought up in Peckham with his adoptive family. He did not do so well in school and eventually attended nine schools in seven years. After dropping out of school, McNabb worked at various odd jobs, usually for friends and relatives, and was involved in petty criminality, finally being arrested for burglary in 1976. Partly inspired by his brother's time in the army, he wanted to join the British army. He failed the entry test for training as an army pilot, but enlisted with the Royal Green Jackets at the age of 16 after being released from juvenile detention. When McNabb joined the army, he was found to have the reading age of an 11-year-old. Shortly before his 17th birthday, he read his first book entitled Janet and John. Speaking in 2019, McNabb recalled how, and I quote, I can vividly remember the sense of pride and achievement I felt. It was meant for primary school children, but I didn't care. From then on, I read anything and everything I could get my hands on. End quote. Now we're going to get into his military career. So he was posted to Kent for his basic training and boxed for his regimental team. After basic training, he was posted to the Rifle Depot in Winchester. In 1977, he spent time in Gibraltar as part of his first operational posting, while with the 2nd Battalion, Royal Green Jackets. From December 1977 to June of 1978, he was posted to South Armagh, Northern Ireland, as part of the British Army's Operation Banner. In 1978 and 1979, he returned to Armagh as a newly prompted Lance Corporal. I do apologise if I get that name wrong, I'm, I'm terrible at pronouncing some names. As a newly promoted Lance Corporal, and claimed to have killed for the first time during a firefight with the Provisional Irish Republican Army, better known as the IRA. McNabb wrote of the incident, quote, I remember vividly the first time I had to kill someone to stay alive. I was a 19-year-old soldier in Kiedis, South Armagh, and my patrol stumbled across six IRA soldiers preparing for an ambush. When the shooting started, they were just 20 meters away from my patrol. I was scared. Very scared. End quote. He was awarded the military medal for this incident, however security sources later reported that the person McNabb shot was only wounded and died as a result of his injuries from a separate shootout later that day. In 1982, after six years' service with the Royal Green Jackets, RGJ, and having been promoted to the rank of Sergeant, he applied for transfer into the Special Air Service Regiment, which was approved by the RGJ. After failing his first attempt at United Kingdom Special Forces Selection, he passed in 1984 and was attached to the SAS, with which he remained for the rest of his career in the British Army. During his ten years with Air Troop B Squadron 22 SAS Regiment, he served with Al Slater, Frank Collins and Charles Nish Bruce. Writing in the Daily Telegraph in November of 2008, McNabb describes Bruce as, "...one of my heroes," quote. McNabb worked on both covert and overt operations, including counter-terrorism and drug operations in the Middle and Far East, South and Central America, and Northern Ireland. McNab trained as a specialist in counterterrorism, prime target elimination, demolitions, weapons, tactics, covert surveillance roles and information gathering in hostile environments and VIP protection. He worked on cooperative operations with police forces, prison services, anti-drug forces and western backed guerrilla movements as well as on conventional special operations. In Northern Ireland he spent two years working as an undercover operator with 14 intelligence company going on to become an instructor. During the Gulf War, McNabb commanded an eight-man SAS patrol designated Bravo Two Zero that was given the task of destroying underground communication links between Baghdad and northwest Iraq and with tracking Scud missile movements in the region. The patrol was dropped into Iraq on the 22nd of January 1991, but was soon compromised, following which it attempted to escape on foot towards Syria, the closest coalition country. Three of the eight were killed and four captured, including McNabb. After three days on the run, one member, Chris Ryan, however, escaped. The captured men were held for six weeks before being released on the 5th of March. By that time, McNabb was suffering from nerve damage to both hands, a dislocated shoulder, kidney and liver damage, and hepatitis B. After six months of medical treatment, he was back on active service. Awarded both the Distinguished Conduct Medal and Military Medal during his military career, McNabb claims to have been the British Army's most highly decorated serving soldier when he left the SAS in February of 1993. Now we get into his post-military career. McNabb assumed his pseudonym while writing Bravo 2-0. When he appeared on television to promote his books or to act as a special services expert, his face was shadowed to prevent identification. According to the book The Big Breach by Richard Tomlinson, a renegade MI6 spy, who was also involved very heavily in the conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Princess Diana, which I've talked about in the previous podcast, McNabb was part of a special training team after the Iraq war training in my six recruits in sabotage and guerrilla warfare techniques Due to the extremely sensitive nature of his work while serving with the SAS, McNabb is bound by a contract to submit his writings to the Ministry of Defence for review. After leaving the army, McNabb developed and maintained a specialist training course for news crews, journalists and members of non-governmental organisations working in hostile environments. He spent time in Hollywood as a technical weapons advisor and trainer on Michael Mann's film Heat. He was also the technical advisor on the 2005 crime film Dirty. In February of 2007, McNabb returned to Iraq for seven days as the Sun newspaper security advisor with the 2nd Battalion, the Rifles. McNabb has written about his experiences in the SES in three best-selling books, that being Bravo 2 published in 1993, Immediate Action published in 1995, and Seven Troop published in 2008. Bravo Two Zero sold over 1.7 million copies with Immediate Action selling 1.4 million in the UK. It has been published in 17 countries and translated into 16 languages. The CD spoken version of Bravo Two Zero narrated by McNab himself sold over sixty thousand copies and earned a silver disc. A BBC film of Bravo Two Zero starring Sean Bean everyone knows as Alec Trevelyan and James Bond Goldeneye was shown on primetime BBC One television in nineteen ninety nine and released on DVD in two thousand. Immediate Action, McNabb's autobiography, spent 18 weeks at the top of the bestsellers list following the lifting of an ex parte injunction granted to the military of defence in September of 1995. The veracity of McNabb's first book, Bravo 20, has been questioned by Michael Asher, an explorer, Arabist, and former SAS reservist who visited Iraq with a Channel 4 film crew and interviewed many eyewitnesses. Asher concluded that much of what McNabb wrote was a fabrication and that there was no evidence that the Bravo 20 patrol encountered for a single enemy casualty. Moreover, McNabb's account and that of his comrade Chris Ryan are contradictory on many points. This has been corroborated by Peter Ratcliffe, who was regimental sergeant major of 22 SAS regiment during the Gulf War, who stated that, in a debriefing to the entire regiment recorded on video, none of the patrol members mentioned contacts with large numbers of enemies or any of the other extraordinary incidents included in the books. Ash's conclusion was that the books' claim to be the true story of an SAS patrol in action was a fraud. McNab now lives in New York City with his fifth wife. He is a director of military service recruitment, mentoring the foundation organization Force Select. In August of 2014, McNabb is one of 200 public figures who were signatories to a letter to the Guardian, expressing their hope that Scotland would vote to remain part of the United Kingdom in September's referendum on that issue. In the 2017 Birthday Honours, McNabb was appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire CBE for services to literacy and charity. The award recognised his charity work with the Reading Agency promoting literacy, particularly in young adults and prisoners. The award was gazetted under the name of Andrew McNabb. Now we get into his fictional writing. McNabb is the author of a number of action thrillers written with the help of a ghost writer. The Nick Stone missions are a successful series based on an ex-SAS soldier working on deniable operations for British intelligence. The series draws extensively on McNabb's experience and knowledge of special forces soldiering. The boy soldier series was written with the cooperation of Robert Rigby and follows a boy named Danny Watts and his grandfather Fergus, apparently a rogue SAS soldier. McNabb has also written books for Quick Reads, a charity that supports World Book Day. BBC Raw Words offers exclusive audio versions of the latest Quick Reads by Andy McNabb. Last Night Another Soldier, published in 2010, read by Rupert Degas. Other fiction books include audio series Minute War series, Battlefield 3, Tom Buckingham series, and Two Young Adult series, Drop Zone stories, and the New Recruit series. McNabb also worked with DICE, the video game developer, serving as the game's consultant on military tactics for Battlefield 3. He penned a tie-in novel called Battlefield 3 The Russian, which follows the story of a Spetsnaz G.R. Commando Dmitry Dima-Markovsky, and his involvement against the PLR, People's Liberation and Resistance, an Iranian paramilitary Insurgents group, as well as his connection to the antagonist. The novel was released on the 21st of October 2011. Now we get into his film work. After his work on the Miramax film Heat, Miramax acquired the film rights to the first four of McNabb's novels and Echelon released in 2012 is currently in production based on the book Firewall published in 2000. McNabb will co-produce and co-write the script and also act as technical advisor. In 2014 Luke Evans was cast as Tom Buckingham in Red Notice with Nick Lover's director. McNabb consulted as a technical advisor and have a role in production as well. Now we get into his other work. So McNabb also took part in E4's Big Brother Celebrity Hijack on the thirteenth of january two thousand eight. The mobcast ebook platform he co-founded with Tony Lynch was sold to Tesco for four point five million pounds, with McNabb's stake being worth one million pounds. Now we get into Chris Ryan. So, Colin Armstrong MM, born 1961, known usually by the pseudonym and pen name of Chris Ryan, is an author, television presenter, security consultant, and former Special Air Service sergeant. After the publication of fellow patrol member Andy McNabb's Bravo 20 in 1993, Ryan published his own account of his experiences during the Bravo 20 mission in 1995, entitled The One That Got Away. While this has led to a very successful career in writing, his and McNabb's accounts of the Bravo 2-0 mission have been heavily criticised by their fellow patrol members and questioned by other SAS members about their authenticity. Since retiring from the British Army, Ryan has published several fiction and non-fiction books including Strike Back, which was subsequently adapted into a television series for Sky One, and co-created the ITV action series Ultimate Force. He has also presented or appeared in numerous television documentaries connected to the military or law enforcement. During the Gulf War, Ryan was a team member of the ill-fated 8-man SAS patrol with the call sign Bravo 20. The patrol was sent into Iraq to gather intelligence, find a good LUP lying-up position, and set up an OP on the main supply route MSR between Baghdad and northwestern Iraq and eventually take out the Scud tells. However, they were compromised and forced to head f- towards Syria on foot. Ryan made SAS history with the longest escape and evasion by an SAS trooper or any other soldier, covering over 100 miles or 160 kilometres, more than SAS trooper Jack Silito had in the Sahara Desert in 1942. Ryan completed a 300 kilometre, 190 mile tab from an observation point on the Iraqi MSR between Baghdad and northwestern Iraq to the Syrian border. During his escape, Ryan suffered injuries from drinking water contaminated with nuclear waste. Besides suffering s- severe muscle atrophy, he lost a potentially fatal 36 pounds, 16 kgs, and did not return to operational duties. Instead, he selected and trained potential recruits before being honorably discharged from the SAS in 1994. On the 29th of June, 1991, Ryan was awarded the Military Medal in Recognition of Galleon and Distinguished Services in the Gulf in 1991, although the award was not gazetted until the 15th of December 1998, together with the equally belated announcement of Andy McNabb's Distinguished Conduct Medal. Now we get into Zaire. So Ryan was also a member of an SAS team sent to protect the British Embassy in, and I'm going to butcher this name, Kinshasa Zaire. The team were to ensure that all British diplomatic staff were safely evacuated from the country before the First Congo War. The operation was meant to last only three days, but eventually took one month. Now we get into his post-military career. Since leaving the SAS, Ryan wrote The One That Got Away, which covers the account from his patrol report of the Bravo 2-0 mission. Both his and McNabb's accounts have been heavily criticised by former territorial SAS member and explorer Michael Asher, who attempted to retrace the patrol's footsteps for TV and claimed to have debunked both accounts with the help of the then-SAS Regimental Sergeant Major Peter Ratcliffe, a very good friend of Asher's. Ryan, now a best-selling author, has written more than 70 books, both fiction and non-fiction. Many of his works are well-known, such as fictional works like Strike Back, published in 2007, which was adapted into the TV show of the same name, and Firefights, published in September of 2008. He also writes fictional books for teenage readers, including the Alpha Force series and Code Red, and has written a romantic novel, The Fisherman's Daughter, under the pseudonym Molly Jackson. In addition to his writing, Ryan has contributed to several television series and video games. In 2002, Ryan co-created and appeared in ITV's action series Ultimate Force, playing the role of Blue Troop Leader Staff Sergeant Johnny Bell in the first series, as well as acting as the military advisor for the video game IGI 2 Covert Strike, helping to make the game more accurate to real-life military operations, tactics, weapons and equipment. Ryan was the star of BBC One's Hunting Chris Ryan in two thousand and three, which later aired on the military channel as Special Forces Manhunt. In two thousand and four, Ryan produced several programs titled Terror Alert, Could You Survive? In each program he demonstrated how to survive disasters including flooding, nuclear terrorist attack, mass blackouts, and plane hijackings. In two thousand and five, Ryan presented a Sky One show called How Not to Die, detailing how to survive various life-threatening situations, including violent burglary, mugging, and violent attacks. In in 2007 ryan trained and managed a six-man team to represent team gb at Shaw for men's extreme pamplona chase in spain during the running of the bulls and also appeared in an episode of the derren brown series mind control with derren brown where he booby trapped a course for brown to follow whilst blindfolded Ryan presented the television series Elite World Cops, also broadcast as Armed and Dangerous, which aired on Bravo in 2008. In the show, Ryan spends time with various law enforcement agencies around the world, giving him an insight to the war on terrorism and drug trade, but from a law enforcement perspective. Now we get into his personal life. Ryan has a daughter. His experiences in Iraq caused him to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, better known as PTSD. Following his consumption of radioactive water during his Bravo 2.0 escape, he was warned not to have any children in the future, but obviously he did. Now we get into the meat and two potatoes of this whole case, which is the controversy surrounding this whole thing. So Bravo Two Zero is the book that is written under the pseudonym Andy McNabb, the book is a partially fictional account of an SAS patrol that becomes compromised while operating behind enemy lines in Iraq in 1991. The patrol was led by the author and included another writer, Chris Ryan. The content of the book was criticised by fellow Bravo 20 patrol commander Malcolm McGowan, who stated, incidents such as teeth extraction and burning with a heated spoon did not happen. It is inconceivable that any such incidents could have occurred without them being discussed or being physically obvious." Michael Asher's investigative book The Real Bravo 20 criticised McNabb's estimation of the number of soldiers the patrol encountered. According to Asher, the patrol never actually encountered soldiers, only police and armed civilians. According to the book, at one stage the patrol evicted all occupants from a taxi and drove until they reached a military checkpoint where Lane shot and killed one soldier, while the others in the group killed two more. According to patrol member Chris Ryan's second-hand account, presumably taken from the regimental debriefs, the group were actually driven to a police checkpoint by one of the Iraqi occupants of the taxi. They discreetly exited the vehicle with plans to rendezvous on the other side of the checkpoint, but the driver alerted the police and the group were forced to continue on foot. Asher's investigation supported Ryan's version of events with no reported soldiers, no reported armed conflict, and no reported Iraqi casualties. The SAS's Regimental Sergeant Major, at the time the book is set, and followed Gulf War veteran Peter Ratcliffe, said of the book, and of the one that got away in 1995, quote, "...it is insensitive on Ryan and McNabb's parts to hide behind pseudonyms when they named their dead colleagues in their books, in deliberate contravention of the regiment's traditions." End quote. Ratcliffe further wrote in his own book Eye of the Storm, quote, I was somewhat taken aback by many of McNabb's anecdotes. He made no mention of the meetings he had with the CO and myself in which we tried to persuade him to take a vehicle or cut down on the amount of kit the patrol would be carrying. End quote. As with Asher, Ratcliffe also cited McNabb's estimate of two hundred and fifty enemy casualties as counter to any proven theory of military kill ratios, but most importantly, the figure was never mentioned in any of the regimental debriefs given by McNabb at the time. Now we get into the subsequent introduction of confidentiality agreements. One of the effects of the book's publication and other memoirs resulted in the MOD introducing confidentiality agreements. These meant that serving members could no longer publish memoirs or accounts without the prior agreement of the MOD. Soldiers who refused to sign these agreements faced being RTU'd. The author of Soldier 5 was pursued through the New Zealand courts to stop the publication of his book. Those who did publish their experiences or were suspected of having been sources for journalists were blacklisted and cut off from any association with Hereford. Now we get into The One That Got Away. So The One That Got Away is a 1995 book written under the pseudonym Chris Ryan concerning the SES patrol Bravo 2 which was dropped behind enemy lines in Iraq in 1991. The author was a member of the patrol and tells of his eight day escape on foot to the Syrian border. Now we get into the controversy that was in the book. So, the content of the book was heavily criticized by fellow Bravo 20 Patrol members Mike Coburn and Malcolm McGowan, and Coburn's Soldier 5, written specifically in the response to this book. Despite the book describing Ryan's single-handed attack on two Iraqi Land Rover-type vehicles and killing two Iraqi soldiers with a knife, the SAS's regimental sergeant major at the time of the patrol and fellow Gulf War veteran Peter Ratcliffe stated that, at the regimental debrief, Ryan made no mention at all of encountering enemy troops on his trek, end quote. Coburn, along with patrol members Andy McNabb and Ian Pring, all wrote letters to deceased patrol member Vince Phillips' family subsequent to the release of this book. Coburn wrote, and I quote, "...at no time throughout the patrol did Vince display the actions portrayed. On the contrary, the very fact that he was on patrol disputes Ryan's version of events. Otherwise, he would never have been allowed to deploy across the border." End quote. Pring described the book as a pack of lies, writing, and I quote, "...Vince did not compromise the patrol or behave in the manner portrayed." Quote. Michael Asher's investigative book The Real Bravo 2 released in 2003, also criticized Ryan's portrayal of Phillips. Asher found that many of the negative attributes Ryan had described did not correspond with the available evidence, nor the other patrol members' accounts. Concerning the TV adaption of Ryan's book, McNabb further wrote in a letter to the Times in 1996, quote, It is a pity that Ryan chose to cheapen his own achievement and the reputations of the regiment and of comrades who would have sacrificed their lives for his had the situation demanded by denigrating those of others, end quote. Koberg also commented on the book, quote, The betrayal of Vince Phillips was a despicable betrayal of what happened. Revelations became more and more outrageous, culminating in a book and film that saw him betrayed in an unfair and undignified manner. End quote. There is some controversy about Stephen Mitchell, aka Andy McNabb, and his book Brother to Zero. Other authors claim that Mitchell McNabb embellished stories about the combat and that he was unfairly and that he unfairly blamed sergeant vince david phillips for the patrol being detected numerous authors have written about the patrol some specific accounts and some in passing the first public literacy mention of the patrol was in the autobiography of lieutenant general and i'm going to butcher this name peter de la billary the commander of the british forces during the gulf war storm command only mentioned the patrol in passing the book was released in 1992. Patrol member Stephen Mitchell wrote an account of the patrol in a book titled Bravo Two Zero 0 under the pseudonym Andy McNabb. Mitchell used pseudonyms and nicknames for the patrol members who survived, but controversially used the full names of those who died. The book was released in 1993. Colin Armstrong wrote the one that got away under the pseudonym Chris Ryan. It criticised Mitchell's leadership of the patrol and was particularly hostile in tone to the conduct of Phillips. Armstrong used the same pseudonyms as McNabb for those who survived, but also referred to Phillips Lane and Consiglio by their real name. Ratcliffe said of this move that it was insensitive to have done that. The book was released in 1995. Peter Ratcliffe, the the SAS's regimental sergeant major at the time of the patrol, wrote Eye of the Storm, which refers to the controversy surrounding the differing accounts of the patrol in some detail. That book was released in 2000. Both Mitchell and Armstrong's earlier accounts were critiqued by SAS Reserve veteran Michael Asher in The Real Bravo 2 in 2001. Asher followed the original path of the patrol, interviewing local Iraqis who witnessed the events. The book was released in 2002. The Gulf War Chronicles by Richard Lowry and recounted much of the patrol's story, though it appeared to borrow heavily from the earlier story published by Mitchell. The book was released in 2003, aiming to set the story straight. A third member of the patrol wrote Soldier 5, the real truth about the Bravo Two Zero mission under the pseudonym Mike Coborn, which more forcefully contradicted the previous accounts. The account also leveled damning accusations against the army and the Ministry of Defence went to great lengths to attempt to prevent its publication, which they failed to do, although they were granted all of the books Prophets. The book was released in 2004. Will Fowler writes of the patrol over a number of pages in SAS Behind Enemy Lines Covert Operations 1941-2005. to 2005. He named the patrol commander as Sergeant Mitch Mitchell, whilst naming the other members as per previous literary accounts. With that, Next, on Unanswered Questions. Wachowski wrote that he first discovered the existence of Degluca by reading transcripts from an interrogation of former Nazi SS officer Jacob Spornberg?